All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll begin reading in verse number 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I said. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray now for the filling of the Spirit. I pray for wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you would just guide and direct as we, as we try, Lord, to, uh, to look at what you have to say for us here today. Uh, help me, Father, to preach, preach clearly, accurately, and practically, and help us all to listen, to hear. Uh, open our ears and our hearts to your word. And Father, you be our teacher. I pray, Lord, I'd disappear. And I pray, Father, people would see and hear you and uh, respond as they need to. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to this morning, Lord willing, finish up our discussion on meats offered to idols. We've been on it now for quite some time. It all started clear back in chapter 8 when the Apostle Paul was answering a question posed to him by the Corinthian church. Uh, is it okay? Is it right? Is it wrong for us to eat meat that has been offered to idols? And he's invested a lot of time and effort in his answer to that question as it, as it covered three chapters, 8, 10, or 8, 9, and and so here we are in the very last part of chapter 10, and I think the Apostle Paul now is, is summing it all up and, uh, and bringing all his points together and, and trying to, uh, to draw a conclusion out of this. And I think here he says to us that there are three things that you need to consider. Uh, that may not be absolutely clear, but as I've studied it, it seemed to kind of crystallize in my mind into three different things that we need to consider. And remember, we're not just talking, this. when I say meat offered to idols, we're not talking about that specific thing because it doesn't apply to us today so much. We're talking about a gray area. We're talking about how do we answer the question, should I do this thing or not? Should I go to this place or not? 
Should I dress like this or not? Should I engage in this particular activity or not? And these are not activities that we're talking about that are specifically prohibited in Scripture. These are things about which good Christians disagree. How do I know what's right? And how do I know what's wrong? That was the meat offered to idols type of an issue. And I think the Paul, that Paul is saying to us here, here are three questions that you consider uh, whenever you're trying to determine the answer to that type of a thing. Number one, how will it impact my brothers and sisters in Christ? Number two, how will it impact the lost? And number three, what does it say about my relationship with God? And so let's look at those three things just for a few minutes this morning and to see if it helps us as we wrap up this discussion of meat off of diets. Number one, how will it impact my brothers and sisters? How will it impact my brothers and sisters? Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. Probably most of you have read it. One of the best-selling books of all time. And uh, the very first few words in the very, very beginning of that said, it's not about you. Somebody around here, Charlie or somebody, has a shirt that he wears every once in a while and says, it's not about me on it. It's derived from that. I think it's a good shirt. I think Paul is here saying something very similar to the Corinthians. I think he's saying, are you clear on this vital truth, Corinthians? Are you clear that you are not the most important person in the world others are? And we've seen this all throughout. This has been a theme all throughout chapters 8, 9, and 10. And he says it here again. Look at verse number 24. He says, let no one seek his own, but each one the others will be. He says in verses 32 and 33, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And so he's saying it's not about you. And interestingly, in, that, in that, those couple verses there, verses 32 and 33, he describes three different types of people. Did you see that there? Uh, the Jew, the Greek, or the Gentile, and the church of God. Three different types of people, and he says none of them we should be willing to offend. And it's interesting that of those three different classifications of people, we could divide it down further, couldn't we? We could divide it down into the lost and into the saved, because some of those are lost. The Jews and the Gentiles, that's referring to lost people. The church of God is referring to the saved. And so Paul is saying here, whether a person is saved or lost, we should avoid offense. In the case of the church of God, which is talking about our saved brothers and sisters, our motivation, as we have seen in previous chapters, ought to be that we do nothing to offend them, nothing to trip them up, nothing to hinder them in their walk with God. That ought to be one of the things that helps us determine whether, whether we ought to do some of these gray area things. And so when considering the rightness or wrongness of a thing, we have to ask ourselves, how will it impact my brothers and sisters? In Christ, How will it impact those who are saved? We have a nursery here in this church. We have a nursery downstairs. Cindy, I believe, heads that up. I'm thankful for that. Nursery is meant to provide parents with a safe place where they can take their little ones during the service and a safe group of people with whom they can entrust them. You know, when our children are little, we, we take great care with them, don't we? We want to be careful with them. We want to protect them. We don't want anything that would bruise them to come near. We don't want anything that would hurt them in any way because they're impressionable. So we take care of what they see in this world. We guard them. Because they're weak, we protect them from anybody or anything that might hurt them. We shelter them. We do everything we can to ensure that they're going to be safe and nothing will hinder them from growing up into the adult that we know they can be. 
We have a nursery in this church. It's a wonderful thing. But I I would say to you today that we also are a nursery in this church. There may be babies sitting right next to you in the pew. I do not know. Or the chair. Now, see, I'm going to have to change my whole way of preaching. I, I can't, can't stop saying the pew. Uh, but there may, be, there may be young believers right here next to you somewhere. And the same truths that apply to our physical uh, babies is also true of those who are young in the Lord. If we have learned anything from the discussions of the past few weeks, I hope we've learned the importance of taking care of those who are younger than us in the faith. Guiding them helping them, nurturing them in their walk with Christ. And so I think Paul is saying here, the next time you come upon a question like that, should I do this thing? Should I engage in this activity? It's a gray area. The first thing we're going to do is ask ourselves, how will it impact those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ? The second question is this, how will it impact those who are lost? That would be the Jews and the Gentiles part of that verse number 32. That group of people that he said we give no offense to. How will it impact those who are lost. We've talked about this, and it's, it's fascinating to me, the, the, the heart of Paul. Paul would do nothing that would hinder somebody hearing about Christ. Nothing. He would do nothing that would stop somebody from trusting Christ. Look at the motivation. It just oozes out of verse number 33. Look at that. He said, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. You know, that might... That might just work as the epitaph on Paul's tombstone. That they may be saved. That was everything about his life. That was his motivation. That just described it all. And so we must ask ourselves whether the condition of the lost motivates us. Anytime we're going to try to determine how or whether or not we should engage in a particular thing, how will it impact those who are lost? Those who are lost, does it motivate us? It ought to motivate us on a corporate level as a church. This church ought to be motivated to make sure that everything we do here is about that. Brother Ray gave a wonderful presentation, by the way, on our To the Ends of the Earth program just a little bit ago. And it's true. We were reminded of the need to share the gospel with those around the world. And every part of our church ought to be along those same lines. That should be one of our motivations. That should be how we test everything. How will it impact those who are lost? wonderful to hear from Molly and to see John's video and to see what's going on over there. It's a great report. You know, anytime we talk about foreign missions around here, there are some who will grumble. There are some who will, you know, they never grumble real loud, but they might just grumble a little bit. And they'll grumble and they'll say, you know what, I don't think we should be sending all our money over there. I think we ought to take care of our own right here. And I sympathize with that thought. I understand where that thought comes from. But I would suggest that this, that kind of grumbling betrays two things. It betrays, number one, disobedience to the clear command of Jesus, because we cannot deny that he said, go ye into all the world. We cannot deny that he said, go ye there and teach all nations. We cannot escape these things. We cannot deny that he said, you should be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth, to the end of the earth. We can't deny it. And so we deny our, our, our little bit of disobedience there. But we also, we also betray something else. We betray that we don't quite understand what's going on in our church. Because the fact is where we might send 15, 20%, I don't think it's quite 20% of our budget for foreign missions, the rest is here. 80 to 85% is here reaching our community. And so we are doing that part as well. But whether it's here or whether it's there, the point is all of it should be used. 
to reach the lost for Christ. Every way we can. How does it impact the lost? That needs to be our question. The needs of the lost have to motivate us as a church, always. It should inform our decisions, always. Every program, every activity. And so as a church, every decision needs to be weighed against that question, how will it impact those who are lost? But on a personal level, it does too, right? We're really talking about a personal issue. How do I personally decide whether or not this thing is right for me to do? On a personal level, we need to ask that. We need to ask, how will it impact those who are lost? In my sphere of influence, those that I have contact with every day who might be lost, how will it impact them? Some of us in this room have unbelieving friends. Some of us in this room have unbelieving family, unbelieving children or grandchildren, unbelieving parents. The truth is, and the truth we need to let never get out of our brain is, that if nothing changes, and that's the way they go out into eternity with no change, they are going to spend eternity in hell. We have to get that into our mind. It ought to motivate us. It ought to motivate us. I know so many Christians who seem unconcerned about that fact, who never seem to be the slightest bit bothered by the idea that their, their family, their friends, their children, their neighbors, the people they work with every day may be spending all of eternity in hell. I spoke with a man recently about capital punishment. We were having a little political discussion, and uh, he was trying to convince me of his position. He was completely against capital punishment. And one of the things that he said, the point he was trying to make, he said this, and I quote, he said, if you put a face on somebody, you won't kill them. And his point was that we need to see people as people. It's a valid point. And he said, when we see people as people, we will not be so willing to do things like that. Well, I don't know about the, the matter of capital punishment and uh, we'll share my views on that some other time. But I, he had a valid point, and his point was this. When we put a face on people, it's harder to turn our backs on them. When we see them as people. And so think about your family. Think about those lost neighbors. Think about those people you work with. Think about their face. And think about it in hell. Can you see it? Think about it a thousand years from now. It's still there. Think about it ten million years from now. It's still there. That has to motivate us. It has to motivate us. I'm not trying to hurt people this morning. I know hell is a hard topic, and I know that nobody likes to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it. But the fact is, it ought to motivate us on a personal level to consider everything we do and how it impacts those who are lost, either positively or negatively. So, when we're trying to decide on the rightness or wrongness of a thing, two questions we've seen that we can ask. One is, how will it impact my brothers and sisters in Christ? And the second is, how will it impact the lost? One more, a third question, that we see in verses 14 through 22. What will it say about my relationship with God? What will it say about my relationship with God? A few minutes ago, we partook of communion. We passed the bread and the cup, and we remembered the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We remembered, we thanked, we worshipped the one who died on the cross for us, for me, for you, that we might live. But notice verse number 16. Verse number 16 is an interesting verse. It says, the cup of blessing which we bless, 
Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Paul uses an interesting word here. It's translated communion in our New King James Bible. Communion of or communion with or communion in the body and blood of Christ. But depending on what translation you're holding, it might say something different. If you're holding an NIV or an ESV, you'll have the uh, translation. It'll say it's the participation in the body of Christ or the participation in the blood of Christ. If you're holding a New American Standard, it says the sharing in the sharing in the body or the sharing in the blood of Christ. And all of those different renderings are equally valid ways of translating that Greek word, which is koinonia into the English. It is a participation. It is a sharing. It is a communion in. So when we take communion, we participate in or share in the broken body and blood of Christ. Now, Paul is not saying here, this is, this is important. Paul is not saying here that when we partake of communion, the bread actually becomes the body of Christ, as some teach, erroneously teach. Uh, some teach that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ and we kill him anew each time. Nor does the juice actually become the blood of Christ and we shed his blood afresh each time. None of that is true. That belief is called transubstantiation. It's wrong. It's heresy. We don't believe that. But Paul is saying that when we take communion, when we take part in communion, we are declaring our oneness in Christ, our participation with him, our fellowship in Christ, our sharing in all that he did for us on the cross. We are one with him. We are with him and he with us. Ordinance of baptism says the same thing, does it not? One of the reasons that we have for baptizing is that we are declaring that we are with him. I am his. He is mine. I'm one of his followers. And so Paul is here saying, if idolatry, and remember we've got to get back to that. He's talking about idolatry here. If idolatry is in reality demon worship, and if you read this, he makes a big case for that. Idolatry is really, is really worshiping of demons. He said, if that's really the case, how incongruous is it for us who have openly declared that we are one with Christ to participate in a thing like that? He said it doesn't make any sense. And so his argument seems to be, if something seems even to be innocuous, but there really has some demonic component as this does, how do we have us so plainly declared our allegiance to and oneness in Christ participate in? What does it say about our relationship with God? It would be like my saying to my wife, I love you, honey. You're the most wonderful person in the world. I pledge myself entirely to you. Oh, but by the way, I'm going to go out and spend some time with an old girlfriend. That doesn't make sense, does it? You'd all slap my face. But that's what we're saying sometimes when we mix those two things. So Paul says when you're thinking through any of these issues, any issue that's not specifically condemned in Scripture, anything that would be a gray area about which Christians might disagree, then we need to consider how it reflects upon our relationship with God. Why would we ever want to provoke the Lord to jealousy, he says in verse number 22. Why would we do that? We wouldn't do that with our family, our friends, our wives, our loved ones. Why would we do it with God? We sing, oh, I, how, oh how I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus. But then we live like we love others more than him. We sing that wonderful old hymn, More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. 
and then we demonstrate by our actions something completely different. So, when I'm trying to determine the rightness or wrongness of a thing, should I eat meat offered to idols? That was their question. You fill in the blank with whatever you want to. I'm trying to decide whether I should do something or go someplace or wear something or participate in an activity, anything that's not clearly spelled out in Scripture, I must ask, what does it say about my relationship with God, with the one who loved me enough to die for me? Am I being true to that relationship? Am I demonstrating my oneness with him? Am I saying to the world, I love Jesus and nothing would do nothing that cast doubt on that love. What does it say? Well, let's finish. Let's draw this to a close. None of this was meant, I don't believe, by the Apostle Paul, and certainly not by me, to be a hardship. Notice how he started this section. I think it's, I think it's important. He started verse number 14, Therefore, my beloved. Very wonderful reminder to us that he was not trying to beat them up. He was not trying to say anything unkind. He was speaking to them out of a heart of love and concern. He also said in verse number 15, I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. Or as one other translation renders it, I'm talking to sensible people. Pretty much you can go and look this up on your own. So he's encouraging, don't just take my word for it. Look it up. You've got a Bible. Look it up. I would say the same thing to you. See if it's not. See if, if you don't see the same thing there. If I'm not telling you the truth, if Paul is not speaking the truth. And the truth about these things is simply this. When we need to determine whether a thing is right or wrong, let's just ask three questions. How will it impact my brothers and my sisters? How will it impact those who are lost? And what does it say about my relationship with God? Those three questions, if we will but ask them, will put us right into verse number 31, which I think is the key of it all. And if he sums up his whole argument of three chapters in one verse, there it is, verse number 31. He says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. May God help us to so live.